Welcome to The Work, a new podcast brought to you by TheatreWorks Silicon Valley. Join us as we explore the world of theater, connecting with artists in a national conversation around the most pressing issues within the industry. I am Alejandra Cisneros. And I'm Steve Muterspaugh. And this is The, the Work. Work. On today's episode, we are chatting with Emilia Acosta Powell, currently the impact producer and co-director of artistic programming at Actors Theatre Louisville. She most recently directed the world premiere of La Egoista by Erlina Ortiz and is a champion of Latin comedies. Thank you for being here. Um, and one of the reasons that we thought you'd be a perfect guest for the work is because you've been doing the work. You've been doing it for a while in the field and really helping change the way the field looks, acts, works, thinks. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your amazingness? <laughs> Wow. Yes. What a beautiful intro. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I accidentally became a professional theater artist. I hoped <laughs> to avoid it, but I kept getting pulled back in. Um, I loved theater, you know, growing up and I, uh, uh, had an opportunity to do a lot of cool theater projects in college and ran a student theater group but really always saw it as something that was on the side, went to graduate school for Spanish linguistics and had every intention of moving into a teaching or academic career. But um, just the way fate would have it, I had a job lined up in Bogota, Colombia, um, wow. teaching English. And they're on a calendar year schedule, whereas we're on like the semester schedule. So I had from May till January to fill and I just wanted to do something fun. And I was so lucky to land a, a fellowship at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. Um, I had been mostly interested in, in directing, but they had downsized uh, their fellowship program and directing wasn't an option. So I had selected the next closest thing in my mind, which was the casting fellowship. And my first day of my fellowship, my mentor told me that he would be moving on <laughs> and that. I would be part of a search to hire the next person. And fast forward, I was hired as the next person and I never went to Bogota. I never <laughs> taught that class. And I became the casting director of Arena Stage when I was 23. And um, I have yet to leave the theater ever since. <laughs> that is the most amazing origin story I've ever heard. <laughs> She's like, no, no, no. It's like, come, come, come. <laughs> it gets you. <ya. laughs> Did you have so did you have a deep interest in theater at all or was just groups that you were in? <laughs> no, I definitely did. I mean, I I can't say exactly what it was that really pulled me in. I mean, I've had theater in my life pretty much as long as I can remember. My dad continues to be an usher uh, at the Denver Center, which is uh, I grew up in Denver and I ushered alongside him. I think the first time I ushered was when I was seven, maybe or something like that. It's um, like child labor laws. <laughs> yeah, it's volunteering. Um, <laughs> Important distinction. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember when I decided that maybe I was good at theater, which was when I was in fourth grade, I was in our school musical and all these parents, even parents of kids who weren't my friends, you know, came up to me and told me good job after the performance. And I was like, wow, I'm an amazing actor, but it turns out I'm just the loudest person. And in fourth grade, really the like metric is just, could they hear you? Um, but yeah, no, I've always loved it. I always thought theater was really fun, but I think, you know, when I, I think you asked if it was like a deep interest and really like it was later in my life that I kind of came to realize that it was more than entertainment, like that something was happening in theater that was actually like starting a conversation that relates to the world at large, or that has something to say about not only the reality that we live in, but kind of the possibilities of the world that we could create. Um, mm -hmm. and that really started when I saw Octavio Solis's play Lydia, which mm -hmm. was the first time that I remember seeing, I think it was the first time I ever did see, um, Latine folks on stage at a mainstream theater. Um, and that really blew my mind. And that's when I was kind of like, oh, this could also be a, like storytelling can be a tool for yeah. social justice. Yeah. 
So you're 23 and you're the casting director at Arena Stage. What do you bring to the table? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Other than like, I already had a key card. And they let me. <laughs> you're like, try me. <laughs> I'm here. Um, no, I mean, I had, I will say I was really lucky in my time uh, with the the casting director before me was just a fantastic mentor and really um, opened my eyes to the possibilities of what being a, a door opener, mm -hmm. that role can be, right? Because casting is a very fraught area of our industry. It's an area that has been, that has a reputation for being about exclusivity and about gatekeeping mm -hmm. um, and about maintaining the status quo. And I'm certainly not interested in like, um, you know, protecting that the skinniest, blondest, whitest, most perfect people who all came out of the same, you know, MFA program and all sing exactly <laughs> the same way and dance exactly the same way, like that those people are the people who get the jobs. Um, but I got to see what a, what a different world it could be that casting had to do with bringing people into the room, helping creative teams see possibilities of what, um, stories could be beyond what's on the page, what the kind of culturally competent version of storytelling is where you're looking at like, well, how does it change the story depending on who's on stage in those roles? Yeah. Um, so that's what I hopefully brought to that role uh, as casting director. Um, and also it became a, a space of community connection, even though it was primarily connecting to the artistic community. I went out every day. I was at the theater, you know, 10 to six or whatever, but then I was at a show. I saw, mm -hmm. I literally saw seven plays a week when I was the casting director because I needed to know who was in town, who was an option. And that went beyond just like, who's already on stage at similar sizes of theaters, but it was also like, who's in the local colleges, who's at, you know, the high schools, or even, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of like summer camp showcases I went to in case we had to cast kids. <laughs> right. Um, and I ended up getting a real sense of like what the whole region had going on in terms of arts. It was also a great sent, uh, opportunity to connect with like you know, when we're doing a show that needs tap dance, like there's a whole yeah. world of tap out there that has nothing to do with regional theater. Um, same with, you know, uh, musicians, percussionists who are part of drum circles. So I found myself in all these different community spaces that was related back to casting, but was also just about um, abundance and creating a sense that like, we can all leverage the talents and the resources that we have for each other as opposed to like what I assumed to be a very competitive space. yeah yeah like getting to know the ecosystem you're a part of um and how important that is to be able then to know how you participate in the ecosystem did how did you take those lessons learned moving forward into your career because I know you're not a casting director anymore that's what true. do you do now <laughs> um, <laughs> So now I serve as the impact producer and co-director of artistic programming at Actors Theater of Louisville in Louisville, yes, Kentucky. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, the title of impact producer is something that has not been as popular within the theater field, but I learned about first from a perspective of documentary filmmaking. And it comes from this idea that uh, in the same way that Another producer might be focused on the pre-production, production, and post-production follow-up around the actual project, you know, the budget, the concept, the hiring of artists, et cetera, that there is also a role for that same type of pre, during, and post uh, producing work as it relates to the social impact of whatever the artistic work is. So, um, I have a role in setting out when we are selecting projects about mm -hmm. what setting our metrics for success. Why are we doing what we're doing? What do we hope to accomplish with it? Who's the audience for it? Um, what, you know, what tools do we need in place to make sure that we are meeting our goals? What are checkpoints along the way? Um, being, you know, a part of that in the room and uh, throughout a project 
And then also the follow-up of assessing, okay, well, did we do what we set out to do? If not, why not? What happened? What can we do differently next time? Um, And always rooting back to like, well, why are we doing what we're doing? Because I do think it can become very um, rinse and repeat or like just, of course we make plays, we're a theater company, which sure, great. Um, but we are nonprofit, most of us are nonprofit organizations, or at least the organizations I've been affiliated with have been nonprofit organizations. And the reason we're a nonprofit is because ostensibly we provide some kind of social (laughs) service and we have a tax bracket that is created to acknowledge that there are certain organizations that are not, um, can't be measured in terms of profits and losses. And yet the main way that I've ever heard our success being measured is in maybe it's not profits, but it is in revenues mm-hmm. and expenses. And that's of course important. You're still running a business, but I think um, having some kind of responsibility back to mission is where the idea of the impact producer comes from. And it, and it does certainly relate. I do still work sometimes on some casting, um, <laughs> but it mainly relates back to that bigger picture idea that we were just talking about, about how the kind of intentionality behind our work, how are we sure about what story we want to tell? How do we track throughout if that, if we're still doing that, if that's still the story we're telling or as complications arise, you know, how do we, if we have to change how we're doing it or with whom we're doing it, are we still doing the, you know, original goal? Yeah. Um, and being out, making those connections to have a sense of like, well, who's in the ecosystem? Who are we serving? And did we ask them what they needed or are we just doing what assuming? we want to do? Yeah. yeah. I love, I love the, the um, title impact um, because it does bring in that qualitative and quantitative together that you do need to do that work in terms of knowing and understanding a community, the demographics, what they need, what you can actually provide. And it also like reminds me that impact is long-term as opposed to a lot of times whenever you're stuck in like this uh, community partnerships, community engagement, audience development, um, there's always like a need to have a quick turnaround to results. Like, why doesn't our audience look different? It's like, well, because that, again, needs time to grow. And it is also reflective on the work you're producing. Um, Does it involve those voices or not? But I I love that just the terminology and the switching of it of like impact. And it really just hits that this is long-term work. And this is the way we see all the work, um, which... I appreciate. Do you get a lot of pushback about that or or do people like automatically understand your role? Um that's a good question. Certainly they do not automatically understand my role. I think I get more questions than pushback. Um but I do think that there can be when, when the train is already moving, I do think that it can sometimes feel like a bit of a nuisance or something mm-hmm. to, to, for me to ask us to circle back to, wait, why are we doing this? <laughs> um, like when you already, you know, you've already started a program or uh, started a communications up, turned in your budget, whatever, to have someone say like, well, why are we doing this program at all? I think it can be flustering for sure. Um And it's not, you know, I'm never approaching it with any sense of accusation or agenda. I'm genuinely asking the question, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it can be surprising how often a program that's been running for years uh, has a staff that struggles to speak to why. Yeah. (laughs) Especially in, um, I, I, when we're talking about at the core, we're storytellers, Right. Um, and then the impetus to tell, there's a why to the impetus to tell any story. <laughs> You're not just slabbing all by yourself. Um, but that, that, yeah, that bringing in the why into a business model does seem to really startle or be like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then, the, and on the flip side, you know, when I am wanting the like, 
numerical, the quantitative data, we're amazingly bad as an industry at capturing that. <laughs> so even that, which is a lot more familiar to a, like a business model, it can actually feel like a kind of a nuisance as well to just say, you know, well, let's sit down and actually look at all of the numbers and analyze those with a fresh perspective. Um, I think that can also be sometimes frustrating, but always really valuable. <laughs> well, all information is value. All information is data. All information is valuable. All information like leads to some learning of some sort. So yeah, it's, it's incredible, but here we are. And, and what about those formative years in between casting director of 23 to impact director of now? <laughs> what yeah. were you doing then, Amelia? <laughs> <laughs> I've been so lucky. I have had the opportunity to to work at a number of different organizations. And um, so in between my time casting at Arena Stage, I then I proceeded to serve as the line producer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is where I met Alejandra. Yep, yep. And my life was changed for the better. <laughs> um, and that was a great chance to explore. Um, I had I had transitioned from casting director to uh, artistic associate and was starting to branch into more of that producing work, but it was a great chance to uh, learn more about the day-to-day -day of being a boots-on-the-ground producer. Um, I had also been really curious just about different models and uh, to learn about what a, a rotating repertory looks like, what a, having a resident company kind of, um, looks like. And I had never lived in a small town. I wanted to know if I could do that. <laughs> Turns out, no, no, <laughs> not for me, but great. No, how, thank how you. you know until you try? <laughs> um, and then, uh, after that, I served as the associate artistic director at the repertory theater of St. Louis, which was another really great learning experience. Um, it was also my first chance to start uh, directing projects at the Lort level. I had I had been doing that since, well, since I was a student, but since I had done since professional directing work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I had so, done some professional directing work as well. Um, but uh, in a, like, I'd self-produced some and worked with some smaller companies. So um, I had a chance to flex that muscle as well um, and learn a lot and just continue meeting more communities, uh, check off my last continental U.S. time zone. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then from there, I came here to Actors Theatre of Louisville. Tell me how you do it, because I'm, I'm one of these folks, too, who are like admin and artistic. I, I jump both. Um, and my mine is also directing. And I sometimes use a lot of my admin brain to direct. And then I also use my directing brain to do admin or to lead teams. Do you find this as well? Or do you just compartmentalize? No, I totally use them both in both directions. And I actually can't imagine not having them, <laughs> you know? When I do sometimes I have the opportunity to have a conversation with like a freelance director who's been a freelance director for their whole career. Yeah. And when I, when like the penny drops for me about something that they're not understanding about how the kind of structure works or the, the producing side works I, every time my mind is blown. Cause I'm like, yeah, why would you have that information? You've never been on that side of it, but also how can you possibly operate without that kind of information? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, I can't remember a time I didn't have access to both sides, but I feel like they deeply inform each other. Um, something that I feel uh, this is a, a phrase that I heard for the first time at arena and my first like professional theater job, but I've also heard it other places um, that I really like in theory. And then in practice, I don't think the American theater uses how I would like us to, but is this concept of carrying the culture of the rehearsal hall into the admin work. That mm -hmm. was, that's something that gets said a lot and kind of like a lot of other, you know, nonprofit catchphrases 
it gets thrown out without necessarily being defined and making sure we all have a shared understanding of what that means. Um, and of course, like I've been in a lot of toxic rehearsal hall cultures and a lot of really wonderful rehearsal hall cultures (laughs) and same for admin. So maybe it means you never know what you're going to (laughs) get. Right. But I think for me that does have meaning as I understand it, just in terms of the sense of like every time you have a, a company in rehearsal, you build a little micro culture, right? Like you build a sense of trust and community. You have a shared goal that you're all working towards, but you have your different approaches. And like, for me, the most success is when we're all learning from everybody, what everybody brings to that table. And that the way that that gets applied very quickly in rehearsal and very flexibly necessarily, because it's, you know, four weeks or whatever to accomplish this big goal, that that carries over to the admin side as well of like, I trust that we all have a shared goal. I know we all have our different approaches and sometimes that bumps into each other, but that ideally we're learning from each other with that. Um, and that there's a flexibility to the movement of like, okay, we thought we were going to have, you know, this thing, this resource, this, whatever, now we're not gotta, you know, reblock that idea. Um, but we still all understand what the main point of the story we're trying to tell is. So, um, I think that they deeply inform each other for sure. Yeah, I agree. And I find it, um, when, when I'm not in a toxic environment, all the things you named are working, that there is flexibility, that we have a clear understanding of what everyone is here for, um, that roles are defined, um, that we're all showing up with goodwill because we have this project and that the project will come to an end. And I think that sometimes is the thing I miss in, in the admin world is that it's all cyclical and projects come to an end. Sometimes in, in the admin world, I feel like everybody's just holding, can't, is not breathing. <laughs> just mm-hmm. waiting and waiting and extending these periods. And of course, those are stressors, but understanding that every season, every project is an ending to a new beginning. But yeah, when I, I am in a happy environment, usually things are functioning like that. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is why we're theater makers. This is why um, we're able to tell these stories. But I do, I do find it a little discerning why Pete, that that is not always translated because so many people that work in admin are theater makers on the side or. I mean, I think when it isn't, when those things aren't all flowing and there is like a breakdown to where it's like more Henry Ford factory style, right. Of like, just stay in your box, just, you know, do the repetitive motion of like, whatever your role, it make the graphic, write the email, copy, draft the grant, like whatever that thing is. Um, that's why we have a meeting with the impact producer where you can't tell me why we do a certain initiative that we've been doing for years. It's because you do like the silo keeps you away from the centrality of what is our actual shared goal. Is there a different model that you would create? I mean, I don't know if I, I, I don't think there's original ideas, right? I only can borrow from what I've learned from other people. We're bringing as a community. Totally. <laughs> From lessons learned. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the bladder leadership model or shared leadership model that I'm so grateful to work in, in this space at Actors Theater has been, um, a really wonderful experience where there is a sense that like, we have a shared responsibility for, um, for the work that we're doing together. And that it requires a certain level of um, responsibility and risk with it too, right? Because what the mm-hmm. the factory model protects you from is if all I do is my little piece and something big doesn't work, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So it's like wonderful and terrifying to be like... <laughs> I feel a genuine sense of uh, agency and responsibility for the whole company. (laughs) (laughs) But acknowledging too, right? That even if that little clog is not working, then that car is not going to leave the factory. So the the mentality that we're siloed is, is not accurate 
right? If if one person leaves, then it just creates complete chaos. But that I guess part of it is like not letting that person know that they're as important as they are. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's you know the the I am kind of a um devotee where I get possibly annoying, but I will say <laughs> I always when I find myself in that mess of like how are we supposed to organize ourselves to get anything done? Like why do humans at this late stage of evolution still not know <laughs> how to do anything together? Um <laughs> I find that I always turn back to Adrian Marie Brown and emergent strategy. Like I think that uh-huh. there is real, there are good tools around what shared leadership looks like. There are communal building looks like, um, but it's really different than how we've been brought up to operate in this industry and in this country. And it pushes back against, you know, the structures that, we get taught if you come up through the U S American education system, anyway, that we get taught are like a given, yeah. but it's really hard and scary to imagine completely departing from that. And yeah. you can't completely depart from it. I mean, even if you create a really wonderful world within your organization or your company or your collective, I mean, you're still in the North American you're system. Still tied to the rules yeah. of capitalism and community building in itself is completely opposite to to the capitalist society that we live in it's just like not it's always going to clash yep um so i'm always yeah how how to put into practice something that we've been um trained to do since we begin school like even the concept of being at school from 8 to 3 is prepping you for your workday when you graduate and join the workforces yep. um that's that's how much it's ingrained so to ask and I find this even when I'm running teams, it's like to ask an individual of like, what do you think? People are usually like, whoa, what? <laughs> Don't ask me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just showing up. And I go, no, it's there's no um uh there's no negative uh, uh that will be associated if our idea doesn't work. We'll just run it again, we'll experiment, we'll change. But so many times that is a huge question to ask people, like. What do you think? What do you what do you want to do? Um, is this fun for you? And people are like, what? I'm out. So let's talk about since we we touched upon it, um, directing and comedy and the canon, right? I know you are um you led this amazing um carnaval from the Latinx Theater Commons. Um, was it last year? Yeah. It was in June 2022. In Denver. <laughs> it was the first in time Denver. I went outside. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tell us yeah, about my, it, Amelia. <laughs> yeah, thank you for asking about that. I have, I'm, one of my top passions is culturally specific comedy. Um, I started out, like, I think, most of us do in our career without the agency to even think about what kinds of stories I want to tell because it was basically a situation where if I was being offered a directing gig, then I was just going to take it because I needed a resume. Um, But having the opportunity to collaborate with the Latinx Theater Commons, which is a a national and international um, movement for um, Latina voices in the theater field, was such a cool opportunity to pitch a project. And um, I kind of, I had been on this journey where I went from, I just love theater, anything theater is amazing, to then realizing like, okay, theater is predominantly white. I'm interested in door opening for my communities and also just communities who have been excluded from that access in general um, to even once I was in a space where I was an advocate for Latine stories, realizing like there was a a significant increase in Latine stories being told, but that they were almost all centering these traumatic narratives, whether that was about um, narcotics trafficking, immigration, family separation, all of which are of course important issues and conversations to be had, but that I, I had a sense that there was this reifying of a mainstream idea of who 
the Latino community is, what what the issues are that we're facing or what's important to us. And that all of that was actually just affirming a white supremacist idea about um, our community being separate and different than the mainstream, whatever that means. Yeah. So from there, I started having a particular passion still around Latino storytelling, but around stories of joy, celebration, uplifting us um, and and comedy stories, because I think comedy is such a beautiful vehicle for um, equalizing, right, for finding people in the same room, whether or not they have uh, the same social location as the characters on stage. They let their guard down when they laugh. We we. Um, connect, you know, we hear other people laughing either at the same jokes as us, which makes us feel connected or at different jokes, which makes us curious about like, oh, what did I miss about that? Um, so it, it, to me, feels very truthful um, and very exciting. And it feels like, um, and it also feels like it has a certain type of appeal. And to the extent that you have to make a case to get a certain story, you know, prioritized with, on stage with the limitations of time and resources or whatever, that there's a, an ease to selling the idea of a comedy because it's not like forcing medicine down someone's throat about social justice story. It's the kind of story that appeals and is also changing the narrative. Um, so it's a long-winded way of saying <laughs> I'm passionate about uh, a culturally specific <laughs> comedy. And I had this opportunity with Latinx Theater Commons to produce a comedy carnaval, which was a festival of new comedic works, um, plays, but also um, different forms with uh, short form comedy, carpas, which are a traditional uh, short form uh, Mexican tent theater, um, also a short film and um, stand up comedy, solo performance. So that was a really wonderful um chance and I learned a lot and um those carnivals are also an opportunity for folks in the field to get exposed to artists who they might not know um which worked because uh, a reading of Erlina Ortiz's play La Egoista which I had the privilege to direct was uh, a successful um experience and something that appealed to a lot of people and I just directed the world premiere here at Actors Theater of Louisville. And the second production is on stage right now at Skylight Theater in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, it's so, I, I'll say, I, for me as a theater maker, um, uh, my love and passion is in comedy. Um, and and even when, I remember when I used to go out for, um, I mean, when I would get approached to direct projects, um, they were all so triggering and so traumatic. And I think there was a point in that where I said, oh, I don't want to do uh, directing for a living because then I have to say yes to projects that don't align with what my values are. Um, and and I, it, it was just something where I was just like, someone else can do that. I don't need to be the person who, who works on these projects. And that was just for me. And I always found that... Um, early on in my career, how difficult it was to get comedies to be taken seriously, because it had become about, there's one slot to tell this person of color story. It wasn't even like the Latinx Latin story. It was like a person of color story. Um, And then that one slot is then like fought amongst, you know, all the POCs. And if it does become like, um, a Latinx Latin story that gets told, it was usually an immigration story, um, which as a first generation here, I also found that um, super triggering because then that became the only narrative that was being told of me and my family and that experience. Um, when, uh, you know, just living my life, I know that there's so much more. <laughs> Yeah. to my experience, to who I am, to my friends, to my family. Um, so to me, I think you were the first person I ever heard talk about being excited about new stories. Cause we, uh, you know, I know culture clash and, and all, um, you know, Latins anonymous and all that, but what was the next generation 
that was going to be telling these stories that focused on humor and comedy and referencing. Um, and that was that was super exciting to hear someone championing it. Um, and that's the title, right? That you get as the Latinx producer, you're the champion of this work. Um, to be like, hey, here's the new generation. And I, I will say when I went to the Latinx theater commons, the Carnaval in Denver, I was so excited to see how many people I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and how they were coming from everywhere from the US, but like, oh, there's so many people I don't know. And I'm so excited to see your work, hear your work, and and champion you along the way um, in your career. Um, so that was that was super exciting. And I want to congratulate you on the work you did with La Egoista and just, well, I think one of the really awesome things at being at the Carnival was that it ended and it's like, how many people commit to doing these plays? And you, a couple of people were like, I'll do it, I'll do it. But like you said, I'm going to commit to this and you did it. And now, yeah, it's opening in LA as well, or it opened in LA at the Skylight. So it's exciting to see um, and just that people are actually um, putting their money where their mouth is, I guess, you know, and doing and really pushing for the next generation of storytellers, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Thank you. That that really means a lot to me. That's exactly what I hoped would come out of that event. So, uh, Amelia, my, my big question for you is with all this work that you do as impact producer and you've done as casting and line producer, and what are the changes that you see as theater is coming out of the global shutdown and the return to live performances and as people continue to kind of dip their toe back into attending these things like but has that shifted the why for you has that uh, changed the community in any way yeah you know i think it actually has just sped up a process that was already underway before the pandemic um we like to pretend that it's the pandemic that has caused some of the big questions in our industry around, you know, audience numbers and equitable, sustainable practices. And um, it isn't right. Audiences were dwindling before the pandemic that there is data that shows that it, from pretty much every theater. Um, people were fighting for more equitable and sustainable practices before the pandemic. Um, maybe the voices weren't being heard as, loudly or taken as seriously, but all of that was there. Um, it made those questions more urgent, which I actually think is great. Um, and we are still in the pandemic. So I think it's premature to decide what the kind of conclusions are yet. And I anticipate looking back, you know, 20 years from now or whatever, and thinking like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we thought we could just move forward with a plan when there was still all this fundamental change underway that we hadn't fully understood. But um, the the question of why feels really stark to me right now. You know, we were deemed non-essential, like officially by the government. And to me, I just thought, oh, if we're non-essential, what are we doing? Because I thought we were a social need, but if we are not, like if we are actually a luxury good, then I am in the completely wrong field and I should go do something that matters. Um, not that, you know, luxury goods don't matter, but it's not my, it's not what I want to work on. Um, for me, the work is about a social service. So, um, I do think those needs have changed and I'm su super interested in analyzing with folks like, so what, what does draw you? Why would you come to a live theater event right now? And I think when we see the popularity of certain things like, um, uh, interactive in, um, you know, live events where you're involved in it or you're part of it, I think about like Meow Wolf, for example, is something that's, um, we now have Meow Wolf in Denver. There's Meow Wolf in Santa Fe and other places in Vegas. And um, those kind of immersive environments, whether that's because they're super Instagrammable or whether that's because they change every time and you and your friends go through and at the end you can compare notes and you had a totally different experience or um, whether that's just because you feel like a part of it, um, you know, that's what you're not going to get 
even though you can stream a million amazing stories from your living room any day of the week. Like we, we do not have the monopoly on storytelling. We don't have, we're not the best at it and we're not the most accessible. So we can't pretend like you need us because we're the most masterful storytellers. But what we can do is create a dynamic in a room where you're actually a part of something with other people and that it will never be the same again any other day. So that I think is something that um, has, I wouldn't say it has changed the why, but has just made it more stark um, and urgent for me coming out of the pandemic. Um, And then, yeah, I am really interested in um, how we're going to move forward creating lives that people actually want to be a part of because our industry has lost a lot of really amazing people. I think about moving on from it pretty much every day. And so does everyone else I know who's great in it. Um, so, but I don't think it actually has to be that way. Um, and, and also I think we have the possibility to imagine a world that doesn't just apply to us because other social services that we need are having the same thing, right? My, my friends who are in healthcare are also questioning if that's a place that they can really sustain their life. Um, or who work in immigration services or environmental justice, right? So a model for how we can be a part of making the world a better place without um, completely burning ourselves out in the process is definitely worth investigating as well. (laughs) I'm so happy you named the fact that, you know, all the issues, all the calls to action um, were things that were already occurring pre-pandemic and, um, you know, every, every single thing from being burnt out to not being paid enough to not being paid to like the cost of living to childcare to, you know, benefits, the things that you actually need to live in this life were not being attended to. The stories were not diverse, um, have not been for a very long time. Um, and also like the, the almost, um, and I, and then this is again, where I go, Oh, we're really good storytellers where, we can pick something up and run with it, right? So, so many, even the idea of joy, I feel has been weaponized and marketed and branded and capitalized. So now uh, you hear um, theater companies uh, name that their season of joy or their stories of joy, or we're bringing the even community, like we're we're all community. And, and again, not understanding why these things exist, how they function in the real world and branding it. And, and then wanting to become part of the narrative to be included. Um, but that's the same thing, I think, even prior to the pandemic. But the pandemic really hit it was how non-essential the, the work is and how there is liberation in that. And understanding that concept lets you take um, uh, risks in the way we tell stories and should push us into innovation but somehow it hasn't. It's something that um, folks have held on to as, as uh, you know, I'm cursing your whole family line by saying that theater isn't really important um, in the way we tell stories or asking why is it that Disneyland <laughs> is filled every day yet people don't want to come see your stories. These comparisons and how um, people do have expendable income, people are looking for entertainment, they're just not looking in theater because we are not moving the field forward. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it's just, um, thank you for naming that. And it's something that I also continue to come back to because one of the reasons I find storytelling as a tool is for social justice. Um, that's the only reason I'm here. And the only reason I think I exist sometimes is to be of service. That's something I'll say a lot of, it's like, how can I be of service? But when it's no longer there, then what am I here for is the question I sit with a lot. When I find myself in conversation (laughs) with other people who also come back to the question of how can I be of service? That's when I'm like, okay, amongst a group of people who are asking that question, then we can work in all those ways we were talking about before, right? Where we are like in that positive spirit of the rehearsal hall culture where we are learning from each other and growing where we are you know filling gaps to meet each other's needs as full humans who can't predict what we you know need on a day-to-day basis but um 
So anyway, it is. <laughs> so I feel like we all need to find each other and then yeah. restart the whole thing. <laughs> I think that is, you know, that we are in this um, huge period of turnover and transition. And while it's like frustrating and scary sometimes, and I do, I mean, you know, I have learned a whole lot of skills that I never particularly uh, <laughs> wanted in terms of like HVAC expertise. And I mean, I can't tell you how many kids noses I've swabbed for COVID and <laughs> IT support and finance department support and random stuff as, as transition has happened. But I do think that a big piece of it is like, we, we did not have a shared understanding of the why prior to this. And I am, even though there's real growing pains in the getting there, I do feel like if we're headed towards a version where we, where we find each other, the people who want to be of service and see this industry as a, a space of social justice, find each other, it is going to be worth it to get there in the end. So. Yeah. And also naming, right. That, that the thing that we're fighting is really this, um, the white supremacy culture that is interweaved into the way that we work. Yeah. Um, and that that's why it's so important that um, EDI work, um, idea work, whatever the acronym is in your space is not just this thing on the side that you're doing to um, become a more equitable space that 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 should be at the core of of all the work but that a lot of the reasons that you are burnt out that you are you know all the things that we just named is because we are in a white supremacy culture that focuses and puts urgency on things that keep people in power and continue to create dynamics of siloing of you know of gatekeeping of being an industry driven by income when there's no way in reality, right, that this industry should be driven by income. And as we stated early on, it's a nonprofit model. <laughs> it's that if you are getting tax breaks, you need to be of service to the community. You have to show the reason why you exist yearly because <laughs> we do our taxes yearly. So um, it's one of those things that I... I always bring up in a room when I can, but that um, the, the real issue of, of um, equity, justice, diversity, you know, inclusivity is really about making the workplace and just making our communities better for all of us. Um, and that just doesn't seem to, you know, there, that blockage continues to be there. And I think that's directly tied to the why, why we continue to do this work, why we're here, um, am I here just to tell your stories as a founding artistic director who's pursuing your career and, you know, uh, gaining skills, or am I here to actually be part of a community, raise voices, you know, make a theater what it needs to be for the community? Cause it always doesn't always have to look the same way. So, um, I do look forward to not, um, constantly plugging the holes on a ship and building a new ship. And I think like we are doing those things simultaneously, right? That is what it continues to amaze and um, excite me about, you know, folks who by my definition are doing the work is mm -hmm. like there. I don't know how we are in so many places at once, but we are like plugging the holes in the sinking ship and also like we're further along than we think in building another ship and we're going to be hopping over there. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think it's, you know, like, I think it's really commendable that we've been holding that both things at the same time. I look yeah. forward to releasing the old one. <laughs> um, Amelia, what are you working on? What's, what's, what's present in your, um, in your future? <laughs> Uh, coming up next, we're working on at Actors Theater, we're working on Party People, Universe's awesome production about the uh, cross-cultural coalition between the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords organization. Um, and uh, we're developing some um, bilingual 
English, Spanish learning and creative engagement programs that I'm really excited about. So my master's in Spanish linguistics doesn't have to be a complete waste. (laughs) (laughs) You just never know when the skills are going to come into play. That's really it. (laughs) You never know. You never know. Um, And with the Latinx Theater Commons, we are about to release our next call for proposals for future projects. So I'm And what is that for folks who don't know? Yeah, so um, as I said, the the Commons is a national movement. We are a steering committee driven organization that so volunteers who um, are just guided by the mission to further Latine representation in theater. And we program on approximately, pandemic aside, three-year cycles. Um, and anyone, 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 anyone can put forward a proposal you don't have to be a steering committee member. You don't even have to have ever interacted with Latinx Theater Commons. Um, but we look for projects that would um, bring us to new places, new regions that we haven't been to. We look for projects that would uh, center and uplift Latino voices um, and branch out our definitions of Latinidad, of theater, of common. Um, so yeah, so a, a request for proposals is going out very, very soon here. And this spring, um, people will have a chance to contribute ideas. And then the steering committee, uh, has a conversation and, and votes on them. That's how I originally pitched the comedy Carnaval in Denver. And, um, now I have the pleasure to be one of the selectors for the next round. One of the champions <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and the projects are fully funded, correct? And the projects are funded by Latinx Theater Commons. Um, any uh, social media, any links that you want to share where people can find your work, Amelia? This really is a reminder that I should make a website, but... Um... <laughs> so if there's any web developers out there, please reach out to Amelia Costa Powell. Yep. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, you can find me at Actors Theater. Thank you, Amelia, for being an incredible guest. You are a colleague, a mentor, a friend of mine that I enjoy and love so much. And I champion you wherever you are, whatever um, uh, time zone you're in. (laughs) Hope that you are international next. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Amelia Acosta-Powell. Links to her impactful work can be found in the episode description. This concludes Season 1 of The Work. Please subscribe to this podcast to follow future conversations as they drop at a later time. Until next time, keep doing The the work. Work.